1: We thank you for joining us this evening. I'm sure we all remember learning about the Civil War in school and that period of Reconstruction following the war. The Reconstruction Era is typically defined as that period starting in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment and ending in 1877 with the disputed presidential election of Rutherford B. Ford and the Compromise of 1877. But so often in school, that time period in our nation's history is glossed over. So what do we really know about Reconstruction? And how can studying that period help us better understand where we are today as a country? On this evening's show, we're going to ask our guest those and other questions about Reconstruction. And we have joining us in the studio tonight, Attorney James Williams, a retired Orange County Chief Public Defender, and the organizer of an upcoming symposium on the Reconstruction period. Also joining us is Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of a recently published book titled Hattiesburg, An American City in Black and White. Thank you both for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.
1: So, James, you have a symposium which is titled "Reconstruction, Redemption, and the Ongoing Struggle for Freedom," that is scheduled for this Saturday, August twenty fourth, and will be held at the Chapel Hill Public Library from ten to four p.m. Um, what prompted you to plan this symposium?
2: Well, uh, several factors, and um, and some of them go back a period. So. Most immediately though, uh, we uh, we being the Chapel Hill Carborough NAACP, uh, we decided to adopt a, um, a book read for the branch. And it's something that we've talked about off and on for maybe a year sometimes it takes time for ideas to get traction. So once um, our executive committee um, and branch agreed to, to do a book read, then there's discussion about what that book might be. Uh, And ultimately, we decided uh, that we would adopt the um, book, recently released a book by Henry uh, Louis Gates, "Stony the Road, which um, focuses on Reconstruction. Um, And so around about that same time, slightly before, Another organization that I, I work with and co-chair, the Orange County Community Remembrance Coalition, we were given thought to how Reconstruction in that period and some of the things that we were seeing now sort of ties into and is uh, related to this whole history of racial terror and lynching. So it was a combination of those things happening uh, that led me to think about maybe planning a symposium where we could take a deeper dive uh, into the, that era of Reconstruction um, and, and also explore some of the myths and misperceptions um, and give some focus to how, you know, those issues still resonate today.
1: So, William, can you kind of lay the foundation for us and and share with us some of the highlights or or some of the the main key characteristics of the Reconstruction period?
3: Yeah, sure. So the, the primary highlights of Reconstruction are the Reconstruction Amendments, which were passed between 1868 and 1870. So after the Civil War, Uh, The United States of America, you know, had to rebuild, obviously, to bring the Confederate States back into the Union. And at first, after Lincoln's um, assassination, the first president enacted a period of what we call presidential reconstruction, which was very lenient towards Southerners. Um, It allowed a lot of sword toward white Southerners who had defected from the United States. It allowed them to come back, be pardoned, get some of their property back. It also allowed them to enact things... um, laws known as the Black Codes, which were sort of these quasi forms of enslavement in which African Americans didn't have mobility, um, couldn't necessarily leave jobs, had to apprentice them sh- themselves in different cases to to white landowners. And then Congress, who they call often the, the radical Republicans, stepped in and said, OK, no, this is not what we had in mind. This is not what the war was for we're going to enact what they called then a radical Reconstruction. And that's usually what most people think of when they think of it as Reconstruction. So the, the things that they did, the, the biggest things were the Reconstruction Acts. The 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment. The 13th ended slavery in the United States of America. The 14th gave equal citizenship rights to all naturalized um, born citizens. And the 15th Amendment gave black males the right to vote. It said that you can't discriminate anymore based on race. Now, of course, southern states found ways around that, as we know. But initially, Reconstruction is this moment where they say, okay, we're going to bring these people who were formerly enslaved back into society. We're going to give them some of the basic rights, at least the rights that we promised to many white males, especially voting and citizenship rights. And we're going to allow them to start to build their own communities, develop colleges, and, and start to really rise up from this period of enslavement. And so Reconstruction, it was hotly contested, as you can imagine, throughout the South. The federal government had to, bring in, um, had, had to bring in troops in order to enforce some of these African-American rights. But then they also started to do things to help African-Americans, such as um, they had services to help people find family members who had been sold off during enslavement. They had um, schools called Freedmen's Bureau schools that were often used to help educate, um, especially young African-Americans, but certainly people of all ages as well. There were different healthcare programs. People started to advocate for building new universities to help train um, black uh, primary school teachers. And it was this moment where, you know, it looked like the United States of America might come out a more equal society and African-Americans, you know, were able to elect black members to the Senate even in Mississippi, which I would would not (laughs) think could happen today. Um, But in state legislatures especially, black people were able to elect representatives who fought for their own causes. And so one of the things that happened was that there was this constant pushback against Reconstruction. And that was political, it was economic, and then it was certainly violent. So the Ku Klux Klan was formed during this period of time in order to fight Reconstruction, in order to peel back the very gains that African Americans were starting to make in the South after emancipation. And so Reconstruction lasts until um, roughly about 1877, but it really ends with the presidential election of 1876. When this to simplify things, the north and south make a bargain. Basically, there are these contested elections in several different states and the electoral votes are up for grabs. And if the Republican Party got the electoral votes from those states, then they were going to take the White House. If the Democratic Party got those electoral votes, they would take the White House. In this case, the Republicans were largely north um, northerners and the Democrats were still largely based in the south. And so they bartered a deal to basically end reconstruction, pull the troops out of the south in order for the Republican Party to then occupy the White House. And so when that happened, um, African Americans still had these rights guaranteed on paper, but what started to happen was that when the troops left and when the North essentially pulled out, then the white Southerners who were interested in retracting those rights came into power and started to um, peel back some of the basic gains that black people had made under Reconstruction.
0: You know, I had um, often tell my uh, class Uh, that the reconstruction amendments themselves were never ratified by the south southern states that they were enacted basically by the northern states and that that serves as we look at it today as a different uh, uh amendment of the constitution than people Understand the amendment process to be. Uh, because now we talk about uh, having what two thirds of the Senate and the House and then three fourths of the states to ratify. But at that time, you had a small number of states, much smaller number of states, that ended up ratifying the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th uh, amendment. And subsequent to that, uh, The southern states, even when they came back into the Union, never respected the uh, Reconstruction amendments, nor has our Supreme Court really respected the uh, Reconstruction uh, amendments. Uh, And my contention is that is due to the way or the abnormal way that the Reconstruction amendments were passed. Let me, well so I,
2: I, in terms of the way you phrase it, I mean there were there were southern states who did ratify now, under the conditions of the ratification, for instance, in order for the southern states to be readmitted to the Union after the imposition of, of, uh, of military rules, so to speak. After the amendments had passed. Well, no, no, prior to... Well, past Congress, yes, yeah. but they hadn't been ratified. So so you would have... The the process was Congress would, 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 would pass the amendments, and then they would be submitted to the states for ratification. The 13th Amendment was ratified in 1865. Now, there was... There, there was, even though, you know, a certain number of the southern states did ratify, that it was like a wink and nod. And so, as Professor Sturkey said, I mean, shortly after that, they started implementing, passing these black codes and everything to basically recreate a state similar to that of slavery. And that's when, uh, you know, the so-called radical Republicans said, no, you know, we've got to do something different. So you did have... Um, so, that, so then one of the conditions... That were imposed was that in order for the southern states to be readmitted to uh, the union, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment. That was one of the conditions they precedent. It. They had to accept it. Now, so so the ratification, they did, quote, ratify. I agree with you totally. They weren't in agreement uh, with, it, uh, with the sentiment, and and they did everything they could do to ensure that it wasn't given full force and effect. But if they wanted to be able to rejoin the union, they had to vote to ratify. North Carolina was one of the states that actually ended up ratifying the 14th Amendment after it had gone through this period of passing black codes and doing everything to to basically render the Thirteenth Amendment null and void, but they were forced to, to do so after yeah. they were required to call a constitutional convention in I think eighteen sixty in the you know 68, where they eventually I think it was in eighteen sixty eight that they eventually uh, ratified the uh, yeah. the Fourteenth Amendment. So, but you but you're right, they never. Most of, at the, well, I would say, none of those southern states really bought into the notion that black people, f- freedmen, whether former slaves or, or free before uh, the end of the Civil War, that they were equal to, 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 to white folks, that white supremacy was the rule of the day, and, and practically all of those states were just waiting for the opportunity that they could re-implement and have a free hand in reigning in and controlling black people.
3: If I might add, too, um, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the legal basis of the Civil Rights Movement, which was largely rooted in the Reconstruction Amendments passed almost 100 years before. And to build off this point about white Southerners' view of the Reconstruction Amendments, they were talking about them in the 1960s. George Wallace in Alabama, for example, was talking about the Reconstruction Amendments in the 1960s when he said "segregation now, segregation forever." He said that these were illegal amendments, and he resented to that day, even in 1963, mm-hmm. having to live under the law of these Reconstruction Amendments, which he still did not consider to be um, mm-hmm. to be just, even a hundred years later.
0: And, and today, right. uh, we right. have that same sentiment. <laughs> that is uh, uh, (coughs) emboldened in legislative bodies Uh uh, from Mississippi on up. Uh, and particularly in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And I want to go back to something um, that Professor Sturkey had said in terms of with Reconstruction during that period, there was this constant pushback. Um, So we've got the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865, and then subsequently we've got the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Can you talk about why there was even a need for the 14th Amendment and then after that the the 15th Amendment in terms of how— Southerners were uh, responding to the Reconstruction period and what, was, what um, the federal government was seeking to accomplish.
3: Right. So the 14th Amendment in particular was needed to give African-Americans citizenship rights. So without, without the 14th Amendment, even if African-Americans were liberated from slavery, emancipated, and they were no longer in that particular state of servitude, if they did not have basic citizenship rights, then they couldn't testify in court. They weren't, you know, they weren't um, eligible to, be, to have due process of law. Um, they certainly wouldn't have had any basis for you know, making claims that public dollars should be spent on their schools and things like that. And so that was really needed to protect African-Americans basic rights as citizens. Otherwise, people could have, you know, of course, a lot of this ended up happening, but committed all sort of atrocities and violations to black people's just basic civil rights.
1: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, but you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We've been talking about the reconstruction period, and we have with us in the studio Attorney James Williams. He is the retired Orange County Chief public defender, and he is the organizer of an upcoming symposium that is titled Reconstruction, Redemption, and the Ongoing Struggle for Freedom, and we encourage you to check that out. It will be held um, at the Chapel Hill Public Library on Saturday, August 24th from 10 to 4 p.m., Also with us in the studio for this discussion is Dr. William Sturkey. He is a professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and the author of a recently published book titled Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. So we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us.
0: back on the uh, Legal Legal Review where we're talking about uh, Reconstruction, Redemption, and the ongoing struggle for, uh, for freedom. Uh, Attorney James Williams and uh, Dr. Williams-Turkey uh, are here to uh, talk about uh, those uh, issues uh, with us. And I know it's been a long time uh, since uh, Reconstruction uh, has officially ended, although uh, to uh, many extents we're back in a Reconstruction period now. But let me kind of focus us uh, for a second, uh, James, on uh, this notion of uh, redemption. Uh, William mentioned the uh, fact that uh, uh, soon after uh, the uh, uh, Reconstruction period started, that there was an effort to give back to the uh, former slave owners and the rebels that broke away from the United States, their rights uh, so that they could participate in the uh, political process in the South. Uh, And that was a type of redemption that occurred and accrued to their benefit. And they were then uh, placed in a uh, position of political power uh, so that they could compete with the uh, newly uh, enfranchised uh, african americans uh, at uh, at that time, I know that is not the redemption that you make reference to in the title mm-hmm. of uh, of your conference. Can you talk about the significance of that redemption and its uh, uh, impact on the uh, uh, effort by African Americans uh, to uh, to gain some parity within the uh, Southern uh, political process at that time.
2: Okay, so let me make sure I understand. When you, so when you say that redemption, what redemption?
0: Are redemption of those white property owners, uh, those, right. the former when they, when they Confederate sought to officials uh, right. as they came back and began right. to okay. uh, participate or ex- exert their power.
2: Right. So so one thing I think that we, we cannot, uh, we must keep in focus as we have these conversations, is the role of sheer violence and terror uh, throughout this whole period? Uh, you know, I think before the break, the question was raised about the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, and one of the things that convinced to help convince Congress uh, that 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 the time was ripe and there was a need for some other amendment in addition to the 13th amendment abolishing slavery was the racial terror the massacre of of black people in two uh, cities shortly after the passage of the 15th amendment and that was in memphis and i believe in new orleans uh, so it was clear or it should have been clear to anybody who was half woke that these white supremacist, racist power figures from the South who Andrew Jackson was a- attempting to restore mm-hmm. into, into power were not going to accept that laying down. And so even after enduring the... Um, efforts to ratify and pass the 14th and 15th Amendments, there was this violence occurring throughout uh, the South where people were being killed, people were being lynched, people were being intimidated. Um, And so that theme was a recurring theme. Um, and And there was also this narrative of racial difference that was being perfected. Uh, it was similar to that narrative that had been used to justify slavery all along, but it was being more sophist- it was more sophisticated. You had uh, so-called scientists, you had these uh, experts in craniology, um, you know, which was so-called a science related to the structure of the skull that helped to uh, support the notion that black people were less than human. Uh, so you had these so-called scholars, you had people doing, you know, who were writers in literature and fiction, practically every tool at the disposal of, of people who had a voice, you know, you know within that, you know, that white supremacist structure was being used to frame and blame black people and the fact that they had been freed and they had been given the right to vote and that they were serving in the legislature as the cause for any ill or any unsolved problem in the, in the South. And so it was that, I think it was that constant drumbeat uh, that helped um, pave the way for the success, if you call it that, of this so-called redemption. Also, there was uh, some economic factors that contributed to that. There was a, I guess it's proper to call it a depression of 1872 or somewhere thereabouts, here again, a lot of the blame for that was placed upon, well, you've got these, um, you know, these um, um, governmental entities in the South where you've got these black people who just came out of the fields and don't know anything about governing. That's abusing your, you know, your 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 government, and so they need to be replaced. So it was all those narratives, in addition to the fact that the North really just wanted to get back to making money. I mean, that was part of this whole economic... And so, as Frederick Douglass said, I I have to find myself always going back to (laughs) Frederick Douglass, and he said, you know, if war between the whites brought us peace and, and freedom, what will peace between the whites bring us? Because it was on the horizon. This effort to sort of Reunite more or less, reincorporate the South into the Union became of more value than trying to ensure that the rights of of the the freedmen were protected. And when that became more accepted by the nation as a whole, including the North, then the South won. The South had won. That you know they'd been more or less redeemed.
3: Yeah, sure. And I'd like to just. Add a couple things, emphasize some others, perhaps. Um, But I just want to be very clear what we're talking about here. We're talking about white supremacist domestic terrorism, Mm -hmm. the Ku Klux Klan showing up to people's homes. If if they were Northerners, they might show up to their homes and say, "Look, you don't belong here." If they're black people who wanted to start a school or wanted to register to vote or run for office, they might show up and say, "This is not your place." And so they use domestic terrorism. Um, the threat of lynching and death, and it was not just poor white people in the Klan. It was all sorts of different classes involved, um, and they would use that that form of violence to intimidate non-white peoples. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the other things that I want to to highlight is this is this idea of racial difference. One of the problems that white Southern leaders had. During the era of Reconstruction, when African Americans gained the right to vote, is that a lot of poor white folks started to think about some of the things African Americans wanted, such as schools for their children, colleges for everyday working people, not just the masters and the owners. Um, you know, lower lower tariffs if you're an everyday farmer shipping small quantities of goods on the railroad, higher taxes for the railroad in order to help support local infrastructure, and local poor white people started to say, well, we want some of these things too. And if they ever bonded with African-Americans, they had a great deal more political power. And so a lot of the wealthy elite white folks in places like North Carolina who had come from large slave-owning families and they had large farms and they had a lot of economic power, they said, no, 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 you can't partner with them because there's a racial difference here. Mm -hmm. And largely because they controlled so much of the media and the newspapers at the time, they were able to perpetuate, you know, all sorts of different stereotypes about African-Americans, whether they were, you know, these people who wanted to go out and try and rape white women or they were these bloodthirsty, you know, vampires who wanted to, like, create black supremacy across the state, whatever that might be. They wanted to make sure that they inserted race in the middle of what could be a class consensus in the state. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we really are still struggling with today. That's one of the great questions in the modern South.
0: Let, let, let me just inter, interject in, 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 in light of that, the fusion movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how how did the, well, first of all, what was the fusion movement? And then how did that impact or not impact this period of time and these activities that you're now describing?
2: Well, I, I, I don't, let me, so I don't know whether that period from 1866, 1868 through the, the, the 77, whether that is classically referred to as the fusion movement or if we're talking later uh, when, you know, in the, I guess, the 18, 1880s when, when you know, especially when we're talking about North Carolina, we, we talk about the fusion. But I think there was something of a fusion actually taking place during Reconstruction time. also yeah. because you had people like you know, Abraham Galloway, for instance, who was very, you know, very active in particularly uh, Northeastern uh, or eastern North Carolina. You had uh, people like, you know, you know like Albion Tourjay, who was who was white, who was a lawyer, who was very engaged. You had working class, you know, you know, you know some working class white people willing to kind of because they were they were hurt by the the Constitution the previous constitution, they you know it was basically a hierarchy where the people with wealth and power were the ones who controlled everything. And so, for a short period of time, I think they saw the value, some of the benefits coming out of the new constitution of the state of North Carolina. Until, you know, as Professor Sturkey said, you know, there was this broader effort, you know, by by, by white people who who still had power to sort of sow the seeds of discord and to convince some of those very same working class whites that, you know, you're better than blacks and, you know, you need to better join us, you know. And now, as far as the the later period uh, uh, of fusion, uh, here again, I mean, it came together, it was successful, but I think it was undone in basically the same way, including the use of... Of of racial terror and these same types of narratives. I mean, you know, up through the the 1898 um, um, massacre in uh, in in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. So you know, whenever there was the opportunity for success, I think the model for undoing it was basically the same. Because think about this: in the 1868 election, we're told that 80 percent of the eligible Black voters in the South, and of course they were all men because only men uh, could vote, voted eighty percent. There were something like over two thousand elected black officials, you know, in the South, you know, during this period of time. I mean, South Carolina, the legislature, I don't know whether the House or Senate or both, one of them, those chambers, was predominantly black. Uh, so that was an era, I think, of immense. Hope, but also immense angst for those, you know, you know you're and talking about you're talking it, about white anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <immense> <laughs> anger, <laughs> right? In and anger. anger, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so all the forces were unleashed to undo that period that had so much potential, um, and I don't know that there's been another period like it in the, in the in, in terms of the potential. In the, in the history of, of this country.
3: Yeah, just to add some clarity to that, you know, the, the, the fusion movement occurs a little bit later, 1880s and 1890s. Mm-hmm. So it's after Reconstruction, but it's essentially the same idea. And the fusion movement, so during Reconstruction, the Republican Party that incorporated African-Americans became all the more powerful and local white conservatives fought against it. Um, by using violence, in the fusion movement of the 1880s and 1890s that ended with Wilmington in 1898, it was a new political party called the Populists combined with the Republican Party once again with white and black voters to pursue a, an agenda that was counterintuitive to some of the elite Southern Democrats at the time. And that yeah, but, ended with but violence. But
0: before 1870, you had to have cooperation between the African Americans and whites in order for there to be this uh, political success uh, that, uh, the African-Americans were able to enjoy.
3: Yes. Yeah. So there were some, there were white Republican allies. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were even some white Republican allies who had owned slaves Mm -hmm. and they said, you know, okay, we lost the war. We want to live by this rule of law. You know, we're going to follow the constitution. And they actually, some of them actually advocated for African-American voting rights and access to public schools. Mm -hmm. But of course those people lost.
0: Now, how did the carpetbaggers fit into all of that, and who who were they, and what impact or influence did they have in in, in, in this Reconstruction period? You
2: know, know, um, I think Professor um, uh, Dawson mentioned the um, learning about the Civil War in school. Well... I'm a little older than you, and we didn't learn a whole lot about the Civil War in school. And what we learned was not – one thing that I remember, they talked about the carpetbaggers and what a horrible group they were and how they, you know, came down and just messed up everything for the, for, for the hardworking white folk and for the good Negroes, you know. And so that was so, – so, so that was the narrative that we were fed um, but, you know, I guess, you know, from from my perspective, carpetbaggers and, and that term supposedly came from the fact that I guess the satchel that some of these people from the north when they came south, they had their stuff in in the satchel that was called a carpetbag. But there were northerners who came to the south, I think, most often to take advantage of, of economic opportunities. During the period following the 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 Civil War, Um, and I mean, I would imagine, and Professor Sturkey knows this better, certainly better than I. But I think some of them probably did some good. I mean, I don't know that they everything that they did was for personal economic gain, Uh, but you you know, I think that was a major a major factor. But to the extent that they cooperated with either the freedmen's bureau or with groups that were supporting the interests of the newly freed slaves they were viewed with much disdain by the by the white power structure and that term carpetbagger was definitely not a term of endearment and there's another term scalawag, but we might get to that later so.
3: <laughs> yeah so carpetbagger generally referred to northern White folks who moved down to different places in the South, either during Reconstruction, during the military occupation, some of them were were, um, officers, but then other people who might have actually been from places like North Carolina and their families had left and they were returning to the South under this new system. And they were often people who were, you know, involved with local or statewide politics and they were charged with being outsiders who were invading the state, you know, without understanding what, you know, the history of the state and race relations were like. But the one point that I want to really add here is that Northerners have been coming to the South for a very long time and they still are to this day. The difference is is that when you come to the South and you start to advocate for black voting rights and African-American equality, you're labeled an outsider or a carpetbagger and told that you don't understand how the South works. When you come to the South with economic opportunities and you want to invest money and you want to help them build railroads and you want to finance new factories, then you're welcomed with open arms. And there's a very distinct um, inconsistency there in terms of which northern, which northern whites especially are welcomed and which ones are repelled and ultimately attacked, like the carpetbaggers were during Reconstruction.
0: This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're talking about uh, uh, Reconstruction, Redemption, and the ongoing struggle for freedom of uh, African Americans uh, going back to uh, the uh, Civil War and the Reconstruction uh, period. We're going to take our break. Uh, right now, I want you to stay with us as we uh, continue this dialogue uh, with uh, uh, James Williams and uh, William Sturkey, uh, who are our experts uh, this evening on this, uh, this discussion. So we'll be right back.
1: Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney James Williams and Dr. William Sturkey about reconstruction. So, you know, it's it's so interesting Mm -hmm. hearing uh, our experts talk about uh, this time period in the history because, you know, and both of you have kind of talked about these recurring themes that continue. And if you're, if you're just listening and you haven't studied that period, it's disheartening that we're dealing with some of the same issues today. Um, so I wondered if, if both of you could talk about, one, why it's so important that we learn about Reconstruction. And James, I think the fact that you've got this symposium that's coming up that's focusing on it demonstrates or illustrates that there's this renewed interest in this time period. Dr. Sturkey, why don't we start with you?
3: Sure. So I want to talk about um, the importance of Reconstruction in two ways. One, pessimistic. We'll start with that. We'll start with the bad news and then perhaps the good news. I think one of the reasons that people are so interested in Reconstruction today is that, um, you know, if you really look at Reconstruction, what we often see in America is this sort of always this march toward progress. Every single decade, things get progressively better. Reconstruction suggests that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So Reconstruction was a moment where there was this great hope that African-Americans might have equality, and then that was stripped away. And we went back to a whole different place and a completely different system known as Jim Crow. And so I think what people are seeing today is the possibility that maybe America isn't just always marching toward progress, but that we have advocates in power or we have people in power now who are advocating that rights that have been won are actually then starting to be stripped away. That might be black voting rights through things like voter ID and different forms of voter suppression. It could be gay marriage. It could be a woman's choice to decide um, what to do with her body. So there are different sorts of rights that people see that are actually up for grabs. And these are things that people had won maybe a decade ago or maybe even longer ago. So that's the bad news. I think the good news um, in my mind, is that there are people who are starting to imagine that some of the problems that we're facing and that we continue to be plagued by might provide an opportunity for us to have a third Reconstruction. So obviously, Reconstruction is this era after the Civil War. A lot of people consider the civil rights movement to be a second Reconstruction. It reconfigured American society by ending Jim Crow, by giving African Americans the right to vote in a, or by enforcing African Americans' right to vote. And so a third reconstruction might comprise things like education, um, health care, doing something about this prison industrial complex. People are also talking about reparations. I see these as all being part of uh, ideas that are being tossed around in terms of how people might want to establish a new American system in order to go back and get some of these problems that we have. And one thing that I'll highlight is, you know. We have a country that's talking about a space force and sending people to Mars, but we still are not able to educate all of our children how to read. And so I think that's one of the things that people are interested in establishing are baselines, right? But be it education or health care that allow for all American citizens to have a true opportunity to prosper in this country.
2: So I I I agree and I wanted to add a couple of things. One of the one reason that I think it is important is because a lot of, unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't really know about Reconstruction. I, You know, one of the um, country's foremost experts on Reconstruction is uh, uh, Professor Eric Foner. He's written several books and numerous ar- articles and given a number of talks. One thing that struck me, I heard him speak, um, you know, a few years ago, and he was talking about a, a survey that was done of high school students. It may have been in the 2000. It wasn't like in the past, you know, five or six years. I know that. But he said that less than, um, you know, close to 80% of them said they didn't know and hadn't been taught about reconstruction in high school, which is a travesty. Uh, Hopefully that's changed. I don't know how much. Um, But in terms of that period and kind of where we are now, uh, I think... um, you know, Henry Gates may have explained it best. He, you know, he basically said we, what we are witnessing now is sort of a period of reconstruction redux. I mean, and when you think about it, you know, what are the hot button issues that we see and hear about in the media practically every day or every other day? You know, one is um, uh, citizenship rights and what rights do or should Uh, immigrants have, for instance. Uh, You know, I I saw or heard something on uh, NPR this morning where the uh, administration is is talking about some sort of protocol where, you know, if you're admitted into the country or you can be either unadmitted or not admitted, if it's likely that you're going to need some sort of government benefit, um, for instance. Uh, but this whole notion of citizenship, who is a citizen, what, what rights do citizens have, that was, that was definitely a Reconstruction issue. And might I add that based upon my uh, reading of some of the history of that period, Martha Jones in particular, a uh, historian out of the D.C. area, I believe, who wrote a book on called Birthright Citizens, now, it was the struggle and efforts of, 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 of freed black people, freedmen, freed black people, prior to the Civil War, prior to the 13th Amendment that laid the foundation and fought for this notion of birthright citizenship that is embedded you know, in the 14th Amendment. And, of course, that's another issue. That certain people in positions of power and influence within this country want to undo this notion of birthright citizenship. When we talk about terror and white supremacy and violence that we see, um, you know, rising, I think, uh, to the forefront in this. You know, that was a critical Reconstruction issue. How do you deal effectively with? Terrorism. And that's what black people were exposed to, you know, you, know, not, you know, not just the Ku Klux Klan, but certainly the Klan was a white terrorist group. Yeah. So that that issue, the relationship between the proper relationship between the federal and state governments, I mean, you know, that is still an issue um, that we're dealing with. Um, but but today. in the
0: middle of all of that, though, terror was used to put African-Americans back in their place. Right. Uh, because there was the notion among whites that America was a country that was designed for, for white people whites. Yes. and white people only. Yes. And as you look at where we are today, is not Donald Trump. Basically saying the same thing as he talk about immigration, and they talk about voter suppression, right. and they talk about uh, voter uh, fraud, and all of those issues, which now is engendering or is emboldening a new form of or a new new outweigh outbreak of uh, of terror uh, directed toward racial minority.
2: I think you're right, and I think this notion that only certain people. Um, only certain people should be in positions of influence and decision making, uh, and this this fear that if you allow people other than whites to 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 have that influence, then the country is no longer quote our country or America. But you know, I think that is part of this whole white supremacist theme. That was resonant during uh, the Civil War, during the reconstruction period, and that ultimately led to the demise of 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 reconstruction. So yes, that that definitely is a is a critical issue. So one do one next? thing that we haven't <laughs> mentioned, I think we need to mention just briefly, is the role of the courts. And particularly with what we see happening, With, uh, you know, our federal courts now under this administration, Uh, you know, not just the Supreme Court, but the role that the courts played, the courts were a very effective weapon and tool of white supremacy. Uh, You know, actually throughout most of this country's history, I was about to say during... During the right after the Civil War and during, you know, helping to undo, you know, Reconstruction and rendering null and void, not only the Reconstruction Amendments but a number of the Civil Rights Acts that we haven't even talked about, and that going through basically until you know, like the 1950s or you know, late 40s when they began to render, you know, a few decisions, but then. That kind of came to a screeching halt probably in the 70s, and now a lot of the decisions, uh, you know, like undoing the Voter Right Act, for instance. And so the role of the courts uh, in protecting or not the rights of people is a is a theme that was a Reconstruction theme that we were seeing playing out today. Uh, and I forgot what your question was.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, that actually, you know... Um, takes us back to this whole notion of a third reconstruction and and where do we go from there? You know how how do we manifest that? Because the game plan, um the playbook that we see, those that want to continue, Um, whites being in control. I mean, it's the same thing that's being done. I mean, you can look at Trump's campaign strategy and go all the way back to, you know, Nixon and even further than that. I mean, the things that he's saying are the same points that were being raised by Nixon um, during the Southern strategy. And and actually, that actually makes me think of another thing, um, Dr. Sturkey, that I, I want you to clarify for us real quick. There's always this discussion a lot on Twitter these days about uh, the role of the the Republicans in terms of um, emancipating, you know, the formerly enslaved and how it's the Democratic Party that, you know, is the party that, you know, uh, was trying to suppress African-Americans. Can can you just real quickly kind of clarify for us the history of the Republican Party when it came to the Reconstruction period and the role of the Democrats then and where we are today with the parties because they really do seem to have, have flipped.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the Republican Party was the party of civil rights in the wake of the Civil War. And um, basically what happened, things changed a fair bit um, in the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt. And then as African-Americans continued to move to the north in places like Oakland and Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, both parties had to think about black voters if they wanted to win in those places. So the Republican and Democratic parties were both pursuing black voters in, in northern cities in the south. The Democratic Party that ruled basically from the Civil War or Reconstruction on um, was still sort of the George Wallace, you know, the white supremacist party. Things really began to change in the wake of World War II, but particularly in 1964. 1964 is the first time that the Deep South ever goes Republican since Reconstruction. Now, places like Mississippi and Louisiana had left the Democratic Party before, but they didn't go Republican because the Republican Party didn't offer them what they needed because they thought the Republican Party was too in favor of civil rights in years like 1948 and 1960 when Mississippi left the Democratic Party and went with a third party. In 1964, the Republican Party nominated a man who, as a senator, voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That means he basically voted against ending Jim Crow. Mm. And that is the moment when the Deep South first went Republican. And the Deep South didn't stay Republican. 68, a lot of them left and went back to a third party. But we've seen that pretty much solidify, especially in the wake of President Obama's um, tenure But one of the things that I want to point out that nobody ever talks about that is actually more essential than what white Republicans are doing is what happened with black Republicans. Black Republicans in the 1950s and even up to 1960 voted for the Republican Party in the presidential election at a rate of over 30%. I think um, Eisenhower got up to 39%. Um, Nixon was over 30%. After 1964... Black Republicans jumped ship entirely. So you had major black Republican figures like Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, like Jackie Robinson, who completely abandoned the Republican Party. So even though Nixon didn't have most black vote, he still had a fair number of black votes in 1960. No Republican presidential candidate has topped 15 percent since 1964. In the 1950s, they were regularly over 30 percent. So one of the things that people need to really look at is, well, what were black Republicans saying at the time? And they were saying, oh, my goodness, how could you possibly cater to these white Southerners who aren't even loyal to your party by nominating someone like Barry Goldwater?
1: OK. And so what do we do today to jumpstart this third Reconstruction? Um, obviously, one is to educate folks about Reconstruction of the past, um, to emphasize, I think, um, uh, William, your point about the Second Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement, I mean, history is really important. What tangible steps can our listeners take to help galvanize this, this uh, potential Third Reconstruction, which we so desperately
3: need? We need to make voting a pillar of, of culture in the black community and of any progressive community. Um, They will take away our right. History suggests that they will take away our right to vote, that they are working to take away our right to vote. We know this in North Carolina. And if they can, it will be gone. And um, even if it's not gone, it will certainly be limited. And we can see that happening all the time. But We do have people that don't view it as important. And it's not just about whether or not you like the president or follow him on Twitter. It's not even about that. You don't need to even worry about the president, quite frankly, many people. It's about what happens in your municipalities. It's about if you don't like the way police are treating black people, vote the sheriff out. Okay, this is something that should be talked about in in black churches and black communities on social media. Steve Harvey has a show every day where he talks about black relationships. And I think that's very entertaining. We should have a similar show about black voting and what can happen when African-American communities galvanize political action and get out really high rates of voter turnout and have a real say in our democracy. Because that's what our people fought for. That is the most essential thing. That's the American idea. Black people should turn out to vote like crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. And
0: and 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 the loss of that leads to the reinstitution of Jim Crow. I think it's where we we are. Right.
2: Yeah, so, and and I agree with that. And I think one of the things that I do think we get too caught up in national elections, when so much of what in, and which is not to say they're not important, they are important, but so much of what impacts day to day lives of 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 of. Poor people and black people and people of color are decisions that are being made by local uh, officials and stakeholders. So, being more in tune and more engaged with with what's happening, uh, you know, with your school boards, as you know, as has been mentioned, law enforcement, what your local judges and district attorneys are doing, and county commissioners, what steps they're taking. Uh, what is housing what does housing look like when we say affordable housing what are we talking about you know what you know those types of things what economic opportunities are there available for for people in your community of color uh, you know if we are not engaged at all of those levels uh, then you know we will suffer you know the consequences of not you know being uh, afforded all of the rights and privileges that you know this whole recon this civil war and reconstruction at least in theory was about and i want to mention one other thing we haven't talked about and that is this whole economic piece because you know with general sherman and that field order number 15 because you know you had all these slaves that were following him i think you know as he came through atlanta um or uh, approaching and they didn't have anything there were these hordes of people who were quote free they didn't have a means of support didn't have uh, a place to go and so you know you know he consulted with some local black leaders or mainly preachers and said what shall I what should I do and they basically told him what was needed and you know and one of those things was land and so he issued this field order um which you know the notion of 40 acres and a mule came from whether it exactly said that or not you know one can but the but that was the the gist of it and it would have given people a start um but of course the white supremacists the then the white supremacists that was in the white house then made sure that that was undone so this whole you know, issue of of recompense, and um, and you know, we're talking reparations in some form of fashion. You know, has to there has to be some engaged discussion on that issue because when we talk about the wealth gap, you know, that is all related to 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 not just slavery, but Jim Crow uh, and 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 the uh, you know, peonage and the whole. Um, oppression and suppression of Black people, you know, over you know centuries, and so that needs to be addressed. And that's one of the issues that we're going to have some conversation about at this symposium on August twenty fourth. Uh, you know, on that panel that deals with. Um, uh, reconstruction, Redemption, and Reparations. So that's another reason people should come out <laughs> for that event.
1: So we're going to have to to end it there, and we want to echo that. And so we encourage all of you to go out and attend this. Uh, symposium, Reconstruction, Redemption, and the Ongoing Struggle for Freedom at the Chapel Hill Public Library from 10 to 4 on August 24th. Um, we'd like to thank our guests, James Williams, retired Orange County Chief Public Defender. He's been a guest um, many times on the show. It's always a pleasure having you on here. Thank you. And uh, a new guest for us, Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of a recently published book that we encourage you all to go out and buy titled Hattiesburg, An American City in Black and White. And we are sure we will have you as a guest on the show again. Thank you. And we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, as always, for taking time out of your Sunday evening and spending it with us. We are sure that you've learned something. Please share this show with your friends and family. And as you know, this show is now also available on iTunes in podcast form. And if you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.